Hey, church, y'all ready for this? And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Let's sing a big old Christmas song. Ready? Here we go. which the Lord has made known to us. Let's join them. Ready? Come and door on bending knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn King. Come and door on bending knee, Christ the Lord, the newborn King.
Hello, ABF. It is so good to see you on this fine day. Hopefully, you're having a wonderful day. My name is Josh. I have a couple of announcements for you. First of all, if there's any way that we could we could be praying for you this week, go ahead and text those prayer requests to 97,000. That would be amazing. So a couple things going on this week. Ladies, you guys have your women's courtyard gathering where you guys are going to be Christmas caroling the night away this Monday, this Monday night in the courtyard at 6.30 p.m. Come and hang out with the ladies and sing some carolers. I know that there's a very attractive caroler that is going to be help singing tomorrow, uh, that night. So go ahead and be there. It's my wife. Uh, Marriage Essentials is coming up, not this Sunday, but next Sunday, December 13th, 9 a.m., in the well. Come and check that out. It's going to be a great time with the risers. Our Caneo Valley Meal Program is also next week. That's next Monday, December 14th. If you're interested in bringing a meal or uh, providing a meal for that, go ahead and get signed up for that online. That would be awesome. And then we'd love for you to mark your calendars for our Christmas things coming up. The first one is just like a, hey, it's coming. Be ready for it. We've got our Christmas video, which is going to be released here in the next few weeks. Keep an eye out. Super uh, sweet opportunity to just share a 10-minute video that talks about Christmas, and it's going to be really cool. So keep an eye out for that. And then also mark on your calendars for Christmas Eve. We've got two services at 4 and 6 p.m. It's going to be a really great time. Mark your calendars, come hang out. We're gonna have hot chocolate, the goodies, all that good stuff. We will see you then. That's all I've got for you. Uh, Why don't you go ahead and welcome to the stage your favorite pastor, Mr. Scott Kegel. Here he is. Well, Josh, thank you for the rousing introduction. Uh, Well done. Greetings to you, church. Uh, Good to be with you. I'm wondering in the mix of our audience, how many people would consider themselves a good golfer? I would not consider myself a good golfer. In fact, I'm a pretty poor golfer, although I can't expect to have uh, good golfing skills when I only golf maybe every one to two years. Well, this last week uh, was one of those times that I had the opportunity to golf. Uh, John Irwin had gotten a free round over at Westlake, and so he invited Josh, myself, and Chris. So we had a little staff outing and uh, tried some golf. And here's what I learned about this game. I like it much better when they do this thing where they call best ball. Does anybody know what that is? Best ball is this. So we broke into two teams, John and I against Chris and Josh. Uh, We were pretty dominant. Uh, But anyway, that's a whole nother topic. But the way that it works is whoever hits the better ball, that's the shot that you use. And so it was perfect. Anytime I had a really lousy shanking it off to the left, shanking it off to the right, I don't even know if that's the right expression, hitting it poorly, I always got to play John's well-placed ball. And so pretty much the entire day, I think I had like four good shots and most of it was just leaning into it. Every single time, I felt like it was a fresh start. I didn't have to think about how poorly I'd done on the shot before. I could always just go to John Irwin's well-placed shot. That was the idea is a a fresh start every time. And you're going to find this as a very loose connection to our idea here today. But really every single one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, long for a fresh start, a new beginning every single day, starting with a clean slate. I was thinking about that as we're getting into this Christmas season. Really, that's the gift that Jesus came to offer. 
a fresh start, a new beginning for those of us that have put our trust and faith in him. His work, finished work on the cross gives us exactly that. New beginnings, fresh starts, that we don't have to be looking at the scorecard any longer. We don't have to be regretting their past. We don't have to be condemned by mistakes that we've made. That's the new beginning that Jesus Christ offers. Well, our story here, our text today, is an account of exactly that, a beautiful picture of a fresh start. In the text, it's not a nominal sinner. It's somebody that's actually been caught in their sin, a sin that was qualified for execution. So this is a serious one, but I'm excited to see how we're gonna get a glimpse of Jesus's amazing grace extended to us. Let me pray before we dive into the text. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this chance to gather, even racing into this Christmas season, and we celebrate you We ask now that you'd be present in our time and our study of your word. We ask that you'd meet us exactly where we're at, that you'd speak to us in the words that we need to hear, even in these moments. We invite that in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. So let me give a a little disclaimer before we start this section. Some of you might even see it in your notes in your Bible. We're in chapter eight, starting in verse one. Actually, we're actually jumping back to verse 53 in chapter seven. I'm not really sure why the statement starts there, but that's this section of your Bible. There's actually some debate whether or not this was included in the earliest manuscripts of God's word. There's no debate over whether or not the events happened, but there is debate over whether or not it was included in John's summary of his gospel. So, with that, some question, uh, there's, there's really respected theologians on both sides of it. Some would say, hey, this was taken out because it seemed too permissive for ad- adultery. Others would say, no, it was meant to be there because it's consistent with the theme. We're not exactly sure, but we do know that it's found its way in God's word. And we believe that it's no compromise of doctrine, and it flows perfectly with the lesson that Jesus teaches fresh out of this account of this woman. So we're going to dive into verse 53 of chapter 7. It says, they went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. All right, we'll stop there for a little explanation. Just a reminder of where we're at in this account. This is right after the Feast of Booths, which is one of the bigger gatherings of people of Israel. And you remember what it says here. It says that they each, at the end of it, went home to their houses. I did find it interesting that it tells us that Jesus, rather than going home because he had no place to lay his head, went to the Mount of Olives. That was a commitment of his to be connected with the Father. And really thinking about this taking place in October, November in a similar climate, it would have most likely been a pretty cold night spent outside. 
before he arrives back to the temple in the morning where folks are gathered around to hear him teach. So he begins teaching the people. It doesn't go into specifics about that teaching, but we're told that that teaching is interrupted. Do you see it there in the text? How's it interrupted? It's interrupted with scribes and Pharisees showing up. Those would have been the dominant religious authorities of that time, bringing into the center of this gathering a woman who had been caught in adultery. I'll just to clarify, sorry if this is uh, speaking the obvious, adultery is sex outside of marriage. Clearly this woman had broken the seventh commandment How do you catch somebody in that? Not exactly sure, to be honest with you. If you're catching someone in the act, what Jewish law required is that you had two witnesses. Not likely unless there was a legitimate setup for this event, using, utilizing this situation. You notice something that's missing, though, in this account. You see it mentions this woman being brought forward, caught in adultery. Now, My understanding is cycling is a solo sport, swimming is a solo sport, running is a solo sport, but sex is not a solo sport. My question is, where is the guy? Where is he at in the story? To me, it's a a, a huge striking omission from the story or the account to not include the gentleman. It's really an act of cruelty for them to just march this woman into the center of the gathering as a point of shame. Most likely she's shaking in her boots, terrified of what's going to transpire next. They weren't concerned about holiness amongst God's people. Instead, they're using her as a pawn in in an attempt to destroy Jesus's reputation. How would this destroy his reputation? Well, we're told that they ask him the question. And John points out that they're asking the question of him of what to do because it was a test. It was putting him on the spot, wanting to see if he would show compassion and go against the written law of Moses, or he would demonstrate justice and have her stoned in front of the crowd. Basically, the reality of that time was, Roman law actually restricted the idea of execution for anything related to religious rules or precedents there. So it would have most likely gotten him into trouble with the Romans if he would have imposed the the Moses law on, on her there. So it was a big deal. He could have been arrested. But if he didn't act, then he would be guilty of breaking Moses's law as well. So they saw this as a dilemma, as the perfect way to trap Jesus. This is a case that should have been brought before the elders of that time or the leadership. It wasn't something that needed a rabbi's input, but clearly they're wanting to trap him in this situation. Now, I always like to do this in the accounts of God's word is I like to have us pause and identify who we are in this story. I'd say who, who we are in this story. Basically, there's three different groups of people. There's the person that's busted or guilty and has been caught in their sin. There's the man that's guilty and most likely thinking he got away with something. Or the religious leaders finding joy and judging others. 
Let's be honest, nobody here in this account is Jesus, so don't get off of that idea. So who are we in this account? The first one, caught in the act. This person, their sin is broadcasted for all to see. There's no surprises. There's nothing hidden with this person. Their addictions are public and their reputation is shot. That's the lady here in this account. And so often that's a story that we see on the headline of news. We think about even in the last couple of weeks, another prominent pastor being exposed for infidelity and now trying to pull back together and restore his own family, picking up the pieces. Some of us fall into that. Some of us would say, man, everybody knows my shortcomings, how I've fallen and how I've broken. So that's one category of people. Another category of people you see there in the text is maybe the gentleman that didn't get brought forward. We don't know for sure if this guy is thinking that he got away with something or he's anxiously wondering if they're gonna actually mention his name in the gathering. Either way, this is the person with hidden sin. This is the person that hasn't been exposed yet. The person that's maybe thinking that they're getting away with something, but in their heart of hearts, they know that they've broken so much of God's plan and his design in their life. The truth is the person that thinks that they're getting away with something, that's all only an illusion. In fact, God's word is very specific about that. Hebrews 4.13 says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. In other words, Jesus sees and knows all. He knows the heart of man. Every swear word that you may have wanted to mutter in traffic, every deceptive word spoken to cover your tracks, every extended glance at someone other than your spouse, every sinful thought that we entertain, he knows it all. He sees it all. Are we this character in this story? Or the third group, the one who's playing judge. I don't know if you've ever heard the expression of a coping mechanism. Basically, a, a coping mechanism refers to things that we do to deal with guilt or stress. It's a popular one in religious groups is this one, playing the role of judge, becoming excellent at identifying others' faults, but never owning your own using scripture to judge others, but not using it to judge yourself. Basically, the reality is that's where so many of us can slip into is just wearing the judgmental hat, looking down at so many, but never addressing our own sin. What's unique about these three categories of people in this account is really all of them actually fall into one simple camp. It might seem like three camps, but reality is, we're all in the camp that's called guilty as charged. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Whether we fit more in the guilty woman, the sneaky man, or the self-righteous Pharisee, either way, we're guilty as charged. So the question is, as we move on in the text, the question that's so important for us to wrestle through is this. How does the judge respond to the guilty. How does the judge respond to the guilty? Is he able 
to uphold justice and at the same time extend mercy in these circumstances. Let's look at Jesus' response. It says in the second half of verse 6, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to him, them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Whoa, what just happened there? Talk about the, the biggest pivot of all time. The, the person that seemed like he was backed into a corner redirected all this. What happened? First off, the question that you've got to ask is what did he write in the dirt? I don't know. I think that's going to be one of the questions we have when we get to heaven. What some, some would suggest, maybe he, he wrote the, the names of, uh, of women that the scribes and Pharisees had been unfaithful with. Others had suggested he wrote down different laws that they had broken themselves. Either way, there's a decisive turn in the confidence of the group of men that showed up with this lady that came marching in with the accusations. All of a sudden, you get a glimpse of humility. Notice though something here. Jesus did not oppose the law or lower its demands. Nowhere in the story does Jesus condone the woman's actions. He's also not suggesting that a human court of law must be sinless in order to uphold the law. If so, it could never be upheld. But rather what he's doing here, you see it in the text, He's confronting hypocrisy in these religious leaders. Look at his words. Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Jumping a, a little bit off topic, but I'm wondering if how many of you have ever tried utilizing or using a boomerang before. I was just recently uh, watching a TikTok video. My kids have me into this. There's actually some pretty entertaining stuff they had this video where this guy had a boomerang and he throws it and he's looking this direction, the camera, he throws it off, isn't looking, puts up his hand, and I don't know if it's trick photography or what, and grabs this boomerang and catches it without looking. After it's been up in the air, comes flying back, he catches this thing. I'm like, what in the world? That's gotta be some kind of a trick there. If I tried something like, like that, for sure I would get whacked in the head or something would go poorly. I love all the videos that capture things not going as planned as well. But I was thinking about that. Isn't that exactly how it works when we want to cause people or use the, wall, the law as a tool to condemn others. It usually, whenever we're looking down at someone, it ends up coming back and boomeranging and hitting us in the head. That's exactly what happens here. He, they, get, they get hit with the exact thing that they were intending to destroy this woman with. The law comes back to haunt them. 
That's what transpires there. Jesus asked them that question. Hey, whoever's without sin, go ahead, step up. And who's going to be bold enough to do that? Who's gonna be bold enough to take a rock and be like, all right, I'm the one that's gonna throw the first stone. But instead, what do we see happen? All of a sudden, you see the influence of Jesus on these men. And all of a sudden, we're told that they begin to drop the rocks. We, again, don't know exactly what he wrote in the dirt. But look what it says. When he bends down and reads, writes in the dirt the second time, it says, but when they heard it, when they heard what? How does somebody hear something that's written? In other words, whatever he wrote in there was so inflammatory that they, they literally heard it. They, they, they had, their, their ears were blown away with what transpired there and they couldn't move on. They had to drop their rocks. Here's what my prayer is for us when we're actually aware and alerted to our sin, that there would be the sound of dropping rocks regularly in our life. We can't hold something over somebody when we've been forgiven of so much. For us to recognize the grace that's been bestowed on us and not be so quick to want to throw stones at others. Basically what happened here is it says that the first, the, the older left, I found that interesting that the older people, a lot of times the us that have been uh, longer sinners or sinning longer, uh, we're more quick to recognize how quick or how short we fall in God's perfect standard. So the older men leave first, the younger man maybe begrudgingly and not quite as self-aware are a little bit more reluctant to go, but either way, eventually the group left. Who's left standing there based on what it says in the text? Just Jesus with this woman. Jesus was the only one that was qualified to take the stone and to throw it at her. And what do we see he does? I imagine she's still a little bit terrified. He instead, I see it as inserting a little bit of humor. I don't know if it's sarcasm. He says, where are they? Do you think he's wondering where they are? Do you think he's confused about that? He says, where are they? Where's the people that were condemning you? They're nowhere to be found. But I love that her response, no one, Lord, acknowledging his identity as Lord says something about maybe a, a change in her heart or her understanding of who she's dealing with in this moment. But Jesus in a beautiful description says, Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. Here's the important thing to understand with that statement. So many times we have the, this perception of God as this angry judge that's just waiting to club us and just waiting to condemn us. We see the exact opposite here. We see a God that wants to extend grace to you, wants to forgive, that wants to pour out forgiveness. Well, not because we deserve it, not because we've earned it, but because that's who he is, he's defined by that. His mercy, his love, no condemnation. Here's one of the harder things for us is we might understand that. We might even say, you know what? I understand that there's no condemnation in Jesus, but I just can't forgive myself. That might sound nice and that might sound like a, a, a humble thing to do, but isn't that actually a prideful thing to do? Are you a higher court? than Jesus himself? Do you have authority to overturn his verdict? I don't think so. 
What you notice though, is after that encounter, there's an expectation for her not to go back to what she had, where she had been. It wasn't because she had to do something to transform and earn God's favor, not earning favor with God, but because of undeserved favor with God, she's to be transformed. Look at what he says, go and from now on, sin no more. Notice he's not saying sin no more, then you can go. Her pardon wasn't dependent on her behavior. Rather, her pardon was motivation to change her, to be transformed. That's what grace does to us. The response to grace should be, man, I wanna align with God's plan and his design. I don't wanna go back to the old way. I wanna, I wanna change. I wanna be moved to difference. I was dealing this last week. Adrian and I were dealing with one of my daughters. We won't uh, mention uh, her name, but she had a, a li- gotten a little bit of trouble. Uh, we have that sometimes with teenage kids. I don't know if others with teenagers, do you have that sometimes? Deal with uh, teenagers that do some things that aren't necessarily well thought through. I'll just put it like that. My wife and I had a tough decision because she had an event already on the calendar that she was looking forward to, but yet she was grounded for an extended period of time. So the question we had to wrestle through is whether or not we let her off for the particular event. And man, she wrote the sweetest letter. It was so kind and she was pouring it on thick. And so both of us decided, we're like, we're gonna give her grace. We're gonna give her grace. So we pulled her in. Well, she decided first, I came along begrudgingly, uh, but poured on and said, you know what? Uh, We pulled aside. Oh, did I say that? And uh, I was like, like, honey, we're we're gonna just give you you a, a break here and extend you some grace. This morning, I woke up the sound of someone downstairs in the, in the kitchen cleaning up and, and fixing things. I'm like, she's usually the last out of bed. She was, there was nothing. We didn't ask her to do anything. She went down and cleaned the whole kitchen just to say thanks. I was like, man, that's the picture that we see here of grace. It's not something that's to be done out of expectation of duty. It's an invitation to a life that's different. Go and sin no more change things, be transformed. Continue in verse 12 here. Jesus, it says, again, Jesus spoke to them. Basically the crowd most likely that had gathered to hear him teach, they had stuck around for this. He says to them, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Basically what happens here is he just demonstrated light breaking into darkness with a real life example. And now he's explaining what actually happened. Most likely to the same people that he started the morning with. He sees them and he explains this, the same statement that he had used prior to this where he said, I am the bread of life. Now he uses the same I am word. I've mentioned that a number of times in the account of John, that I am is a statement of, of divinity. He's using the same words that the scripture that God used revealing himself to Moses with a burning bush. So this I am statement has some meat to it, has some substance to it. He makes that claim of deity and explains that, you know what? Um, around me, there is no hiding. 
There's, there, there's no darkness. All of a sudden, when you're exposed to Jesus, all the things that you may have thought you had hidden come to light. And it's an invitation to live in the light. Nothing is hidden. I always think of Isaiah, the prophet's words when he encountered God. He says, woe to me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. That's in Isaiah 6, 5, a beautiful account of understanding that when you're exposed to the light, man, there's no sense trying to hide any longer. Verses 13 through 27, we're not gonna take the time to unpack all of those. Let me give some degree of summary though. All in that, that section of scripture, basically these, these people, or the, the religious leaders that must have come back or sticking around, get into an extended debate with Jesus over his claims to deity. Basically, they argue about what authority he has to make those statements. Jesus patiently tries to convince them, explaining them that, the, that he came from the Father, that the Father testified to this, some of the stuff that we talked about earlier on in the book of John. But in that description, you realize the same thing that we often realize interacting with people. Once somebody's mind is made up, man, it's near impossible to change their mind. You can present the most logical review, but when someone's decided something, it becomes a heart issue more than anything. Jesus, again, as we've talked about in the last section, pleads with them in verse 24, I told you that you would die in your sins for unless you believe that I am he, when he says he, he's referring to the Messiah, you will die in your sins. It's a somber warning, a somber reminder that, the, that each one of us, apart from Jesus Christ, is sitting on a precipice, hanging over the edge with eternity at risk. Never forget a cheesy movie that I watched in the early 90s. It was called The, called the Cliffhanger with Sylvester Stallone. And that might even be before your era. It's maybe a, a rental for you this next week. Basically, there's a scene in that movie that's forever haunted me. It's Sylvester Stallone. He's reaching down over this cliff. Somebody's uh, rope had broken. She's about to fall. And you're thinking, oh man, he's gonna, he's gonna for sure pull her, pull her up. He's, he's Sylvester Stallone. He drops her. Like what in the world? That was in this, in this movie, I'm still haunted from it. This picture of hanging over the precipice and not being able to rescue. It must've been heartbreaking for Jesus as he's interacting, trying to plead as best as he can with these people. In verse 28 though, he makes one last appeal. One thing that he thinks just maybe this might be the tool and it will for many that convinces them that he's telling the truth. It says, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. What's he saying there? When he refers to being lifted up, he's referring to his death and resurrection, still the thing that we point to people today as the most compelling evidence of his identity out of any possibility. The fact that he died 
and rose again. He invites that. He's, he's passed that on. You see, Jesus doesn't take this sin things lightly. Just because he let this woman go, let her be free from her sin, doesn't mean that it didn't come with a cost. Eventually, he paid that cost for her on a cruel cross, tormented and executed on her behalf, on our behalf. We see, though, in the very last words of this chapter, and we'll end with this, just a beautiful picture. Verse 30 says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. I love it. This account, this picture, they had seen at firsthand what this light looks like, what grace extended looks like, and they couldn't resist. There was those in the crowd that had soft hearts that saw all that transpired and said, I'm in, sign me up. You wonder when you look at Jesus' life, how he is trying at so many different opportunities to appeal to people, to draw them in. I was in a conversation just a couple of weeks ago in my office and talking to a, a young adult. And he said in the conversation, he's like, man, it sure seems like you're trying to convince me to think something about God's word here. I was like, uh, yeah, I am. It's the same thing that Jesus is doing, trying to convince you that Jesus is the one rescue, that we're invited to live differently, that we're invited for so much more not to go back to our old sins. Go and sin no more. Well, I hope this text is an encouragement and maybe a, a reminder of who we're dealing with going into this Christmas. The, the one hope that we have in all of this. Let me pray as we wrap up. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your word and get clearer and clearer pictures of who you are. Not a not an angry father that's looking to condemn, but a loving father that wants to extend grace upon grace, but doesn't want us to go back, wants to see us transform then on the other side of grace. We thank you for this picture of you. I pray that it compels us even going into the week ahead. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. Hear the angels sing, there's hope for everyone to announce our King. There's hope for everyone, what good news they bring. There's hope for everyone, angels sing, there's hope for everyone. They came from afar, there's Wise men saw a star, there's hope for everyone. Shepherds heard the choir, there's hope for everyone. From afar, there's hope for everyone. We are waiting on the promise for the one who likes the darkness. Glory in the highest, Jesus, come let us adore, there's hope for everyone, on the manger floor, there's hope for everyone, what are you waiting for, there's hope for 
Thank you, worship team. Uh, Galatians 4, 4 to 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. This week, uh, we light the Advent candle that represents love. God's love for us moved him to send his son from heaven to earth. This love came down to save us, to restore us, to redeem us, to adopt us as sons and daughters. We take time to remember every Christmas. We are overwhelmed at this sacrificial love, love that has a name, and his name is Jesus. Amen. Well, thank you, Aite family. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.